0: Luckily, you know, in an art form as, as deep as, as jazz, where people actually you know, are improvising this and really playing what they feel. Uh, you know, it's such a lovely thing to sort of be there with them doing that. So, you know, this is not the, quite the same as being there, but it's the
1: feeling of being in that hall. That's founder and the executive director of SF Jazz, Randall Klein, talking about their online series Fridays at Five. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. I don't think any of us had the spring or summer we had anticipated. In April, we had been planning to celebrate the 2020 NEA Jazz Masters with our partner, SF Jazz, in the Bay Area at the glorious SF Jazz Center. And while that has been postponed, there are plans in the works to celebrate the Jazz Masters virtually. It's another example of performing artists and presenters stepping up during the pandemic in creative and innovative ways to share the art that keeps us all going. And to no one's surprise, SF Jazz is in the vanguard. SF Jazz is a national and international leader in jazz creation, presentation, and education, celebrating jazz as a living, evolving art. It's the biggest presenter of jazz on the West Coast with over 200,000 customers and students going through its doors each year. So when the SF Jazz Center had to close because of the pandemic, the organization went to work and quickly produced a weekly digital series known as Fridays at Five, which offers hour-long concerts filmed at the SF Jazz Center over the past six-plus years. Acts have included Terrence Blanchard, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Pink Martini, Branford Marsalis, Rhiannon Giddens, and so on and so on. And patrons still get to mingle with one another, as well as with SF Jazz staff, board members, and musicians via a live chat. Back in April, I spoke with the founder and the executive artistic director of SF Jazz, Randall Klein, about Fridays at 5 and a little about the origin story of SF Jazz itself. Here's our conversation. You often refer to some of the musicians who've played at SF Jazz as family. I've seen interviews with you and somebody will mention Wayne Shorter, for example, and you'll say, oh, he's family. (laughs) And I wonder how your musical family is doing right now. So the family,
0: it's um, a really challenging time. And, I've, you know, I've, I've talked with some musicians. You know, Everyone is just thrown for a loop through all this. So, you know, it is like, you know, just a difficult part of this is, you know, we all are being thrown for rhythm. We all want to do things the way we used to do them, and we can't. And so for the family, it's the same issues. People are really trying to understand, you know, how they're going to work through it. You know, musicians work, you know, they get paid. It's a fee per service. And without the concerts, they're, you know, it's cutting off their their livelihoods, you know, a lot of them. So it's tough. We're going to see. you know, we're trying to find ways that we can engage musicians.
1: Well, in fact, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about, because SF Jazz began a program, a series called Fridays at Five. And I'd love to have you tell us about it. Fridays at Five is
0: based on videotapes uh, with great audio attached to them, uh, videos that we've done uh, over the course of uh, six of the seven years we've been open in the, in the SF Jazz Center and there's some remarkable stuff there and we were getting ready to sort of launch a, a digital membership program for people that are beyond the Bay Area that can't visit the place this fall or winter. We, we launched it this spring instead. In a slightly different manner, but what's great about it is it keeps the whole family actually healthy, to your question. So the family being, so in these broadcasts, we're asking people to become SF Jazz members for $5 a month to watch this once a week broadcast. And and then there's a, you know, what we're calling a tip jar attached to it as well, too. So uh, of that tip jar, we, we're splitting that with, with the musicians. We had a group Pink Martini on, you know, we sent them a check for $5,500 it's free to current sf jazz members we have 14,000 of them you know they're they're participating everyone's chiming in and so the, the bigger the group gets the, the more people contribute the program's growing it's you know close to doubling every week we do it uh, as far as people coming into it and uh, we're going to be doing something actually um, in a few weeks with, with a group of musicians that appeared when Wayne Shorter was not able to come to the building um, of the tip jar for that concert, which involves a lot of big stars. Uh, Branford Marsalis, along with uh, Wayne's Normal Trio, we're going to give 100% of the chip tip jar from those t- to Wayne. So we're trying to do what we can for the family, <laughs> basically, is what we're doing now.
1: You know, even though the arts community, and especially the performing arts community, both Artists and presenters are being hit so hard by this virus. I'm also really awed by the resilience and agility and creativity people are showing in getting work out and and working. Yeah,
0: necessity is the mother of invention. You know, this is one of those big moments. You know, what else can we do? You know, we have two hundred thousand people that come through the SFJS Center every year. That's not likely to get to that number and, and the foreseeable future right now. So we've got to be resourceful and we've got to think. So this program, for instance, the Digital the Fridays at Five program is going to, you know, accelerate, you know, quickly. It's the only place we can actually get to people. And uh, hopefully it'll be in such a way that we can benefit artists just as they might have benefited from having gigs at the SFJS Center when it was up. So, you know, we're, we're going to try to figure it all out in the, in the weeks and months to come to that what was going to be the sf jazz uh, you know launch of our our digital offerings our digital membership we definitely now will launch when we were hoping to in september but it's going to be much accelerated.
1: Randall, will you describe the experience you want the the viewer and the listener to get when they when they click on Fridays at 5. I know you have wonderful archives, but there's a bit more to it, isn't there?
0: Well, what's interesting about th- this program, so you know, we we never anticipated this use of the footage. So what we've been doing for five years, six years working on this program, when we built the center in 2013, when we opened it in 2013, we anticipated distributing what happens in that building to a, a broader audience than just the people that happen to be in the Bay Area or visiting the Bay Area. And so we dis, you know we, we had to design a, a video capture system an audio capture system. That would allow us to do sort of best quality, but at the same time, we had to figure out, you know, to be efficacious about it and, and try to capture the feeling of being at the SF Jazz Center. So I'll try to connect the dots quickly for, for you here. But basically, when we designed the SF Jazz Center and working with the architect and the acoustician the, and, the and the theater planner, we wanted to create as warm and intimate and the, the most community vibe we could in the place so that the performer would be as comfortable as they could be. They could hear what they want. They could connect with the audience and the audience could be as comfortable as they want and they could connect with the performer. And some kind of alchemy might happen if we paid attention to those details. And I think we got pretty lucky with this. Anyways, the group took this idea, this kind of uh, warmth and connection and trying to see if we had any control over the elements to create this... um, alchemy or what what a writer once called sort of the transcendent moment when uh, when you're at a performance
1: and you're taken somewhere else. Of course, a live performance is a unique experience and translating that to film has to be challenging. Yes. The
0: next thing was, well, if we were going to capture this and is there any way to convey that feeling via a digital medium? and um and so, in designing the camera systems and how the operators work and how they capture and and the the quality of what you see was the whole intent was to try to come up with something that captured the feeling as best we could of sitting in that theater, so we have forced some very tough restrictions on the crew that records these, and one is it's done all by one person with all remote cameras. So there isn't a director and an operator and an editor. It's literally, it's like the equivalent of audio live to two track that if someone is forced to be basically the the camera operator, the listener, and what it's like to be a listener and understand all the peripheral things you might see or hear or be distracted by or how When you're looking at a soloist, say, um, you know, you zero in on a saxophone player, what they're doing, you know, with their hands or their mouth or whether they glance at somebody else or, you know, trying to take that idea that naturally we zoom in, we zoom out, we pan, we do all these things when we're there. Could the feeling of being in the moment that the camera person is actually like they're listening to the concert and they're reacting to it. No one's telling them what to shoot. They are in it. And uh, I can tell you, it hasn't been easy. You no, know, we're getting there with it. It's great. And so we were going to apply this to some other things, just about full length concerts and all that, you know, later on. But now it really gives you the feeling now at in our Fridays at five, when you can't be in the building, it, it's just like another degree or two more towards a live thing when you watch it, like being there. So that's the idea. You know, this is this digital analog thing. And because of the times, you know, we've been forced away from that that live experience. So the design of the hall uh, was really this gathering around the fire thing. You know, we, we have this primitive urge to gather, to heat up around something. And that the hall is designed like that. You know, there's seating on the sides and behind the stage. It's designed to feel like a club, even though it's, a, you know, 700-seat concert hall. Uh, but it's designed to sort of create that intimacy where you, you, you could be watching that soloist or that band, but you're seeing someone else reacting to the music as well, too. And uh, that creates a sense of community. And uh, anyways, I think we're getting close to capturing that in, in this in this program, which we're going to continue to grow.
1: Well, is there commentary or a a host or audience engagement? How does that work? How do you bring that into the mix?
0: Yes. So we have a moderator and, um, and we've added, um, the one post production thing we've added to this, um, you know, we've, you know, we've stitched on, you know, intro footage and things. And, um, we have, we have a moderator and each week, uh, we've had people from the bands talking as well, too. So Julian Lodge was very active on his chat from everything about identifying to people want to know what kind of strings he uses, you know, to, uh, talking about the music itself, you know, in the moment. With Pink Martini, um, China Forbes, uh, the lead singer of the band, was on the chat along with, the, you know, someone from the group giving insights when people want to know more. So it's kind of like having and, – and people respond to each other that are on there. So it's kind of like being at the show where, you know, I, I know when I go with my wife and, you know, I, I give her the elbow at a moment like, hey, check that out. You know, we, <laughs> we get to do that a little bit uh, digitally like, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe I just – you know, what I just heard. You know, you, you can make that eye contact kind of digitally here. Uh, with this dialogue box.
1: I'm just curious, what made you decide to broadcast Fridays at five at a specific time? At Fridays at five?
0: One of the great things about this gathering around the fire concept of you know why we all seek out live music to see with other people is, you know, this this kind of sense of being there together. And with Fridays at five, you know, we we never anticipated that we would do a broadcast at a specific time and that would be it. In other words, you know, a lot of it would be archived or do that. But this was, no, let's do it this way. Let's try it, see what happens. And people are responding to this, particularly in this crisis, in the sense that what a way to end this week. You know, at five, I'm getting ready. People are preparing their cocktails, their wine. You know, there's a number of Zoom groups that have formed around this, you know, the people with their friends, and it's the equivalent of... Going out and gathering around the fire you know for this thing and, and and because it only lasts an hour you you know particularly with time being so fluid right now you know when you're you're working at home and you know that the difference between your 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 workplace is your your home and that people have a place to to be at a certain hour and particularly at the end of the week this sense that oh, I remember what it was like when I used to go out to see live music, <laughs> you know had to be at the venue at that time and it's going to start at this time. And, um, and while a number of people have commented, you know, well, you know, can, when can I see this again? I, I think the beauty in this is actually it being a bit ephemeral or not being a bit, being ephemeral that, you know, it's there and, you know, it's just like live music. You know, you so one, of, one of my favorite experiences know, Sonny Rollins or Joe Henderson when he was alive or when Sonny was performing in a number of contemporary performance, but those two in particular I think about is like. You hear it, and that's all. You have to remember it. You have to live with it. You had that moment, and you're know, holding on to that thing. Is is a uh, you know one of the beautiful things about listening to live music? You never know when it's going to happen. You never know when you're going to have that transcendent moment, and when you do, it's just like you hope it lasts. You know, you can savor it for a long time, but then eventually it just fades and becomes a memory. You're seeking another one, and uh, luckily, you know, in an art form as uh, as deep as, as jazz, where people actually you know are improvising this and really playing what they feel. uh, You know, it's such a lovely thing to sort of be there with them doing that. So, you know, this is not quite the same as being there, but it's the feeling of being in that hall when when that happens.
1: As you say, it's also such a lovely way of creating community. We're not in the same hall, but at the same time, we're all gathered at the same time, watching and listening to this wonderful music. And when it's over, maybe we're chatting or Zooming or calling our friends and saying, Oh my God, did you hear that? Yeah. And being able to have that conversation about something we shared, even though we're not physically in the same place, I think is very restorative.
0: Yeah. We had like the most poignant moment happen during Liz Wright's broadcast. So a, a woman who, um, was talking, she had just lost her mother, and this was so healing to, to watch this show. You know, and everyone's talking, you know, you know, so sorry for your loss, and people are gathering around her. Um, and then at some point, someone, someone said, I remember being at that show. Wasn't that the show that the keyboard player was talking about losing his mother that day? The end of the broadcast, um, you know, we, we, we do edit this a little bit because we bring it down to an hour but we make sure that there's an encore. When Liz comes out for her encore, and it's typically their encore, she gives the speech about the keyboard player, her friend, losing his mother that day. And it was uh, just so moving, just amazing. So people, this community thing about you know getting together and this sense of life being disrupted and why you know that woman who had lost her mother would go to see a performance, like, or to go to see a Liz Wright, because she wants to... You know, try to understand this thing a little better. And music is a way to feel it and, you know, move through it and, uh, you know, appreciate it. Anyways, it it happened in this really, you know, totally spontaneous uh, unfolding there.
1: Like jazz.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Randall, just a little bit about
0: you. How did you come to jazz? I I was fortunate. I, I grew up in New England, a small town north of Boston, about 20 miles north of Boston. And my parents were big music lovers. Uh, My father was actually a pretty good amateur jazz piano player. He loved Errol Garner. He loved Monk. And my parents used to go out and hear jazz every weekend uh, for a long time. And my mom also liked show music and uh, symphonic music and uh, pop music as well too. And I had two older brothers that were really into music as well. So you know, I was listening to all the you know Freddie Hubbard and you know Hubert Laws and all these incredible creed taylor recordings but i can remember these covers and hearing these things growing up but the truth was i really wasn't that interested in them as a kid <laughs> i was more interested in pop music and i really i really got into you know like all the british invasion groups and you know the r&b stuff kind of leading into that you know music became an important part of my life early and then eventually i went on to study music so i, you know, I went to school actually out here in san francisco uh, i started playing you know Semi-professionally then professionally, um, as I was uh, on my way of dropping out of college the, the first time. And, uh, <laughs> and when I went back to school, it was to go back, you know, and I, you know, I worked in bars, actually, in Boston area with a folk singer, backing up a folk singer with my first first work. But went back to school as a music major and, and took it really seriously, and thought I wanted to make a career as a musician. And when it became clear to me that I was never going to be Paul Chambers, I decided <laughs> that there are other things to do. So that um, I started, ended up working in music. And and that's how this all kind of started.
1: But how did you move into presenting jazz?
0: At that time, I was going to a great club here in the Bay Area, Keystone Corner, which now has actually been reincarnated in in Baltimore.
1: Yes, indeed. And we love Todd Barkin. He's a dear friend of ours and an a jazz master.
0: Yes, absolutely. And Todd, you know, really was, you know, talk about sort of, you know, musical finishing schools. I can't tell you how many great concerts. Todd was not the greatest businessman. I, I can say that.
1: <laughs> Todd can say that, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he was always in some kind of straits, you know, having to do a benefit. Or to, and then at one point, he issued these things called Keystone Cards, where you would get 10 admissions, I believe it was, for $40. For a musician, you know, type on cash, this was like a, the gift of all gifts. So with the Keystone card, I can remember a week that Abby Lincoln was there and Axe would play six nights a week, two shows a night, that I would show up at with my Keystone card and get punched and pay the equivalent of $4, see this incredible performance. Then I could go next door and get a cappuccino at the Cafe Italia in North Beach Till the people came in for the second show, then go back in for show number two. And I remember seeing, you know, 12... Performances of Abby Lincoln, courtesy of that Keystone card, basically, and you know, as a student, it just really allowed you know, or or someone who really was you know, wanting to absorb every bit of that, you could see all the nuance in a performance of a week. So, but anyways, while I was going to see these performances, is when I said, oh, you know, this must not be too difficult, very naively, you know, to to, to put on concerts.
1: So you talked to Todd Barkin because you thought, damn, two people can lose money doing this. (laughs) Exactly.
0: That's pretty well, you know, I had no, you know, like I was a naive, you know, young man trying to think that, uh, you know, this, this, anyone can do this. So it's everyone's fantasy. You know, like, you know, let's put on a show. You know, we all think we can do this. You know, I went to Todd and said, well, you know, what do these musicians do on their Monday nights? So, you know, you know, they're usually looking for gigs. And so I said, can you help me connect with some agents and how, how to do this? So as a result of that, here we are. So so I, so I found the acts, and we booked a series of concerts. You know, with a pretty amazing group of people. Dexter Gordon was the first act I booked. Unfortunately, he had to reschedule, so he became the second show. The first one was Kenny Burrell. So it was Kenny Burrell, Dexter Gordon, Flora Purim, and Ayerco, Joanne Brackeen, Jack DeJohn. special edition. I remember that was when Chico Freeman was in the band then. Oh my God! And it was a, an amazing series of things, and uh, you know, in this crazy, you know, faded country western bar in San Jose down on its luck after the end of the urban cowboy boom. But the guy allowed me to to use the space on Monday nights. And so the series was called Jazz on a Monday. This is 1981. And it was uh, what they call uh, in the business an artistic success. And uh, (laughs) I ended up having to, you know, as a result of that, to, to find work to pay back the debts I incurred for the concert series. And the work I got was working in the music business. Basically, I got a a job at a nightclub and I started doing that. And eventually, Clint Gilbert, uh, he and I started the idea
1: of um, what is now uh, SF Jazz in 1983. That's when you began Jazz in the City. And I wonder, Randall, what was the dream when you
0: started? It's a great question. There, There wasn't really much of a dream. I mean, there was an idea eventually just kept growing and growing. But Clint and I, Gilbert and I, were working. He knew the person who was the administrator for the City Arts Granting Agency, San Francisco's Arts Granting Agency, called the Hotel Tax Fund. And he used to work with her at a community center in the East Bay in Richmond and here in the Bay Area. And in a conversation uh, with this woman, his name is Carrie Shulman, she said, you know, oh, the city would love to do more with jazz. So we sat in her office and we brainstormed this idea for San Francisco Jazz Festival. It was then the Jazz in the City Festival. And we had to be a nonprofit. And, you know, this is a long way to sort of explaining, you know, like what the dream was. The dream was just to do this festival that featured Bay Area artists. It was a, you know, not too um, big event. It was a, like a small, really community oriented event. It was all Bay Area artists. It was two nights of concerts at a beautiful theater we ended up using a lot over the years called Herps Theater. And again, uh, we got the city granted us $10,000. Another private foundation, the, the San Francisco Foundation, granted us ten thousand dollars, so we got twenty thousand dollars to launch this festival, basically, um, which was another artistic success. Um, <laughs> it went It went well, but not that well. You know, we did about attendance of about fifty percent, and we needed to do better. And there were reasons that we looked at, and and this became sort of a theme of how SF Jazz eventually started to to evolve. We saw what our mistakes were, what we had presented in that first year, which is this eclectic view of music, because San Francisco had a very eclectic jazz scene, you know, of four different acts, four very different acts each night. We ended up finding out it was for what we did, that it didn't work. So we went for the niche or more curatorial approach, which then is what sort of set us on its path of how we tended to program from that point onward. It worked very well in year two, and and we actually were able to pay back the debts we incurred from that first one, and we started to grow. And that's kind of the founding story. And from that point on, every year, it's doubled or tripled in size almost every year, every two or three years as we started to get bigger.
1: And of course, building the SF Jazz Center was a game changer for you and a game changer for jazz in San Francisco. Well, it was it, it was the culmination of a, of a big
0: dream. So you know, your first question about what the dream was, it's all around that idea of trying to create these environments where you could hear great music in a great setting, basically, and, and enjoy it. So the, the dream started to also evolve. The dream became... This is something that deserves its own home. From that point of view, I like to say we pretended we could build a building. <laughs> and we went out looking for real estate and we had no money. Uh, in the meantime, you know, San Francisco Jazz Festival, which was, then became the name of the organization, well, it eventually morphed to SF Jazz, and we were growing and growing and building a good reputation here and, and, and nationally and internationally. We started looking, and eventually we found a piece of property we liked. Then we started talking differently about it. And then eventually the dream evolved to beyond, wouldn't it be nice to have our own place, to could we create a cultural institution here in San Francisco for jazz and not just the cultural institution for jazz, but a different way of thinking what a cultural institution might be in the 21st century. And so that became another kind of audacious idea. And we took it seriously. And everyone who worked on the project took it seriously uh, that that's what we were trying to do. And, you know, we're, we're kind of inching our way there. We're, we're, you know, we're in a neighborhood with more established cultural institutions, the San Francisco Symphony, They're our original model. We took them as our kind of intentional model. If they can do it for Western classical music, we could do it for jazz. And that was a time, and actually the NEA was very active in this idea of establishing jazz in its kind of rightful place as as cultural player. And, you know, there were programs there. One was called Jazz Management. Uh, There was Advancement. There was Challenge. That We we participated in all those programs which played huge roles in our growth. The NEA, I mean, you know, really was key. First one was Management. It allowed us to make our first hire for the staff of Jazz in the City. I remember they paid half the salary for a development director, someone to help us raise funds as a nonprofit. And that was key. That was like the biggest thing ever for us at that time after being around for three or four years. And the other one was Challenge, which we entered into in in around 2000. And that was a program designed to move startup nonprofits to kind of being more uh, established, mid sized players, you know, on their way to kind of being institutions. And that was an extremely rigorous program. You, know, and I, you were assigned a, a consultant you worked with for a year to develop a strategic plan. And, and that strategic plan is really what created this chance of a dream and a roadmap for the organization, at least for the next four years from there, which is still very relevant. And, and the building was identified actually in that. The Center for Jazz is what it was called then. So you know, we've been fortunate. We had these tremendous resources. They really were what set us on our path
1: you know as we face this pandemic it's a very big challenge for you for sf jazz for for the musicians for presenters for the country as a whole and i'm wondering if there's any music you're leaning into right now any any song or side you're playing that you can just rest with or or go someplace else with
0: so it isn't one particular thing. Interesting enough for me, with Fridays at five and trying to launch this digital stuff, I'm looking at a lot of video and listening to a lot of music of things we've done over the past six years. So that I'm hearing a lot of, and it is that itself is is inspirational. But this is you know one of the reasons why I you know I think what's driven me all these years is, I mean I love listening to music at home. I got a great sound system here. You know I got a great sound system in my office. I listen to stuff, but there's nothing. Like live music for me, and I am so missing. It. Look, I've tied up a lot of my life in, in, in SF jazz here, and um, you know I may be overly identify with, with with it you know, because of doing it for so long. But what's keeping me going through this interest is just sort of fantasizing about sitting in the normal seat I sit in in that hall, listening to music. More than what's moving me more out of this is something kind of looking forward to how this thing, how we can all pull out of it. And most of my thoughts are going to about how to strengthen ourselves. And when we come out of this to, to be a you know, better organization and be more relevant and make that a better experience, uh, we're all going to be hungry for that coming out of this. And um, I want to make sure that we do what we're supposed to do when we, when we get there.
1: Randall, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you've been doing all these years for jazz. And what you've done in San Francisco with jazz is astounding. So my hat's off to you. And I love Fridays at five.
0: Good. Keep tuning in. We're looking forward to seeing you in San Francisco.
1: Someday, Randall. Someday. That was founder and executive director of SF Jazz, Randall Klein. So far... SF Jazz has collected more than $250,000 in proceeds from its online tip jar at Fridays at Five. This week, Fridays at Five is featuring John Schofield, joined by the all-star group Lettuce. And the Wayne Shorter celebration continues on July 31st with another tribute concert featuring Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard and many others. Find out all about it and who else is coming up at sfjazz.org. And stay tuned for how the Arts Endowment and SF Jazz will celebrate the 2020 NEA Jazz Masters. You can find out the details in the next week or so at arts.gov, so keep checking. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks and leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe and thanks for listening.